I mean, when we discussed drama, it was more a lack thereof. I mean, I didn't hate it. I know I'm coming across as if I hate it, but it did. It just took too long, was my complaint. Is we had to wait two minutes between every single player call, which they absolutely knew in advance who they were picking. Welcome back to Cricket Central, the podcast where we discuss all the stories, big and small. We've got a bit of a smaller um, group here today, just Pearson and the Bod with me, and it will very much be a bit of an improvised podcast this week as we all deal with lots of uni work, I think, and other commitments. Um, but we're here nonetheless and with lots to talk about as well. Obviously, the second England-South Africa test the Asia Cup, which nobody is, is keen to talk about, the BBL draft and Australia's dominant performances against the powerhouse of Zimbabwe. Uh, all that later. But uh, first, how are we both? Navad, how's your week been? Yeah, not too bad. My hay fever's kicked in a little bit, so I'm a bit nasally at the moment, but I'm still living. So that's that's all good. Oh, no. No, yeah, you've still got the, the nice dulcet tones of Navad here, so hasn't affected that them at all. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Pearson, what have you been up to? Yeah, no, I, I should be doing lots of work, but I'm just listening to Antonin Scalia instead. Not necessarily the best thing to do, but he's good, so I'm I'm happy doing so. What is he in Australia? No, not oh. at all. I'm just listening to him a lot because I don't want to. Oh, like he's my dead anyway, isn't he? What am I saying? Yes, he died <laughs> six years ago, so no, he's definitely yeah. not in Australia. Maybe yeah. his ghost is, but I don't think he is. <laughs> But no, I just don't want to do my international law essay. So I'm just listening to oh, another nice. type of yeah. law from Scalia. Well, makes sense. Uh, all right. Well, um, I'm sure you'll be keen to talk about England's performance in the second test, though, in stark contrast to the first. They ended up winning by an innings and 85 runs. And really, just as in the first test, it was South Africa from the word go really having the ascendancy in this test um it was england um with broad and anderson on the first day bowling absolutely incredible spells on a on an old trafford pitch that was had a bit more in it than a lot um expected south africa obviously um deciding to to bat first on the pitch um and and play into the the baz what's best for baseball but they obviously thought that the pitch was good enough and um well, we can we can talk about that in a second. Potentially, um, not the not the the best move, um, but the the big story really um, was just how England were able to to bounce back. I guess Anderson picking up three in the first innings and brought it as well with three, and then obviously with the bat, the big stars were Ben Stokes and Ben Folks, both scoring centuries, um, and then in the final innings, Ollie Robinson leading him to victory as well. So Pearson, just to start things off, um, what? How did England manage to turn this around so quickly? We just we have a weird tendency, actually, of doing this quite often. We're not as dominant at home as some other sides, particularly Australia and India. However, we very rarely lose back-to-back games at home. From memory, I mean, I was trying to locate the stat while you were talking just before. But I think it's about 20 of our last 22 times we've lost at home. We've either won or drawn the next game. So as a general rule of thumb, we do bounce back well. Why that is, I don't know, to be honest. But it's just generally been a thing with English cricket. And that dates back, not just in the McCullum era, but all the way back basically through the last decade. Uh, But no, honestly, we just out. And it was very much, 
the exact same way I described South Africa in the first test is how I'll describe England here. They just, they batted better, they bowled better. And honestly, the fielding was significantly better as well. I thought South Africa were poor in a way I didn't expect after the first test. I do think the fact the pitch was a bit slower, a bit less bounce probably helped. I also think South Africa just made a lot of mistakes. I think they got the toss wrong. I think they got team selection wrong. Harmer, regardless of my support for Harmer, I don't think they needed two spinners in that side. I still think they're a batsman light. That's not to say England don't have issues. I named English issues after we lost the first test. But I would say that that exposed the flaws that basically everyone sees in that South African side at the minute. It's a fragile batting order. And they lost a bit of the impetus with decisions that really should have been made a lot better. So yes, we played well, but I think the overwhelming story is just South Africa seemed quite inconsistent. Yeah, yeah, we can, we can get onto that more in a second. But Navod, we did speak a bit last week, suggesting that while it was an incredible performance in the first test by South Africa, um, you know, you would expect England to have come back. And it really was that South Africa sort of just jumped England in the first test. Um, but I was expecting sort of it, it to be a baseball style that got the job done. But this test, it was sort of more just good, sensible batting. Um, in their innings, you even look, at how players like like Stokes and folks batted, um, it was sort sort of more um, just uh, sticking it out on the tough pitch for a while and then cashing in a bit later on. What did you say? Yeah, definitely. I had this complaint about uh, Ben Stokes' last test and actually all the previous tests against New Zealand and that one test against India as well. I thought he was needlessly aggressive, and I think aggression is a good thing, but he just didn't play it strategically well. He was especially we saw that in the last test. You know, you could have. Really, we were they only were bowled out with a trail of 12, I think. So, I mean, I know you, it was probably inevitable that they would have lost, but I think in, in that case, Ben Stokes could have batted a little bit more strategically um, and, and a little bit better, just like he did in this test. And I thought what he what he played, there was a, there was a mix of aggression, but also it's very smart batting. Um, obviously, his dismissal was a bit uh, aggressive as well, but he, he got the sanction and he got the good runs that England really needed. So I thought he played really well. And Ben Folks as well, having a very set batsman, uh, at the crease really helped him, I think, with his um, inertia in his batting innings. So he uh, had a really nice century, and I'm yeah really happy for both of them. I'm big fans of uh, both of them, especially Ben Stokes. So it's good to see him finally get a um, uh, get a century and some good bowling as well after a very disappointing Ashes campaign. Yeah, yeah, his, his first century for quite some time. I'm not sure the the um, the actual length, but obviously with time out of the side and. Um, then a few games as captain. It is good to see that. Um, and then Pearson, it was really, it might be, a, you might not be happy with me saying this, but I thought in a way Crawley sort of set up um, the way that you were going to go about your innings um, with his 38 off 101 deliveries um, and showing a bit more grit at least um, in his innings. I think probably half of those 38 were edges sort of down to third man. Um, and then the other half were some, some nice leg glances that he did. Uh, apart from that, there wasn't much else. But you know, he he set he sort of showed the um, way that you were going to bat at least. No, I I fully agree. I think you virtually answered the question yourself. There. Yeah, because he has he did he batted competently. It wasn't impressive. He wasn't fluent, but he hung around, which is not really something you associate with Zach Crawley. 
So that Crowley on occasion can be a bit explosive. Stickability is not his thing. But he did it well. I mean, it was also a very Zach Crowley innings of you're about to get dropped, so you hit a very painful 38, and that keeps you in the side for another test, which is exactly what's happened. I still don't think a non-fluent 38 of 101 balls is enough to pick him in the Pakistan tour, but I did think that he reined himself in well. I thought he came out in a period where we really could have lost the impetus. Although headlines will go to Stokes and folks for their hundreds, rightly so to some degree, I do think it's easy to gloss over the contribution that we had, not just from Crawley, but also from Bairstow. It must be known both South Africa and England lost their third third wicket on 41 runs in that first innings. And if Crawley had then gone and played some wild swipe outside off something like he normally doesn't gone out, we could really have had that lead evaporated. But I think that 90-run partnership really set the tone. And even beyond Crawley, it suggested we're starting to work out what the limits of this so-called baseball strategy are. And as Navod says, players like Stokes channeled it. I think Crawley showed it well. Besto just looked fluent and got unlucky, and then Folks was superb. So, yeah, no, it, it was good from Crawley, and it bode, boded well for England as a whole, I thought. Yeah, definitely. Um, but then from South Africa's side of things, really, on the, the, the tactical elements, um, it, it couldn't have gone worse, really. They played two spinners in England for the first time since 1960, um, I saw, uh, and at the expense of their all-rounder, I, I guess you would call him in Jansen. Um, so that meant that Harmer batted at seven. Um, and then I guess it, it also sort of meant that they almost had to bat first um, so that they would be bowling last in uh, to get the, the best value out of their two spinners. Um, but then when they only scored 151 in the first innings, they were sort of doomed to fail this. Yeah, I, I again, I think... There is a limit to how much you can blame the toss on things. I mean, they did also lose by an innings and 80-something runs. But I do think it was the wrong call. I think it was, as you say, led by their selection. I think it was it was pretty much a package deal, really. Is You come to England and you pick two spinners and three seamers and leave out a very promising young left-armer in Marco Jensen then you do have to bowl well and the pitch must suit your spinners. I think to do that, pretty much exactly what you said, it puts more pressure on you to bat first. I think both South Africa and England are bat second teams. England, because they're a bit more swashbuckling and they like to know where they're going with it. South Africa in the sense of their grittiness. I think you'd look at their tests against India a few months back. I think the two tests they won, they did chase in both innings. Same way, every test we've won under Stokes and McCullum has been a chase. We chased three times against New Zealand, once against India, and of course this test. So I do think possibly South Africa need to look at not just doing what they think will benefit them, but also what the opposition wouldn't want to do. And for England, that is setting. We've never... And that's not just now. We've just historically not always been a great side at setting totals. I mean, same with the ODI team. We chase better than we set. So I do think that's something South Africa can work on. And that goes hand in hand with player selection of don't pick two spinners in England. I mean, yes, it's Old Trafford, but 
the ball was doing more than enough to warrant keeping your pace balls inside. Now, Vard, I guess the other big story to come out of this was um, the return of Ollie Robinson. Uh, he threatened in that first innings, but then a big forfer in the second. Yeah, I thought he bowled um, really well. He just he just has this really natural, nice line and length, which just seems to get get wickets, and it's really effective. So, yeah, I thought he play, he bowled very well. Um, was obviously very effective, um, especially in that second innings. So, um, yeah, he did quite well. Um, picking up the wickets of, of early Maharaj, Nokia, Ngidi. So a few tail enders, but nevertheless, it's still um, still really, really good. Um, yeah, just has that nice natural line of length that's always been effective and always really worked for him. I think my one complaint with him is he lacks a bit of pace. Um, Nokia is the obvious like go-to for this, I think. He, he has that natural pace, um, you know, that raw pace. And I mentioned this last podcast as well. It, it really shows how valuable the raw pace is and, and accurate pace as well. Um, but yeah, th- that's my only one complaint with Robinson. Otherwise, what he's doing is great, especially on a, a bit of a slower pitch like this, where there's uh, there was a lot of variable bounce as well. Some were going slightly higher, some were really staying low. So especially on a tricky pitch like this, I think uh, it really suit- suited Robinson quite well, and he bowled really well. Yeah, it is quite a, quite a contrast between um, the bowling cartels of both sides. You've got South Africa who all average about over 140 k's an hour, and then the English who struggle to hit 130 most of the time but uh okay that the final thing i do have to with uh, great reluctance bring up um is that in a in a case of brilliant timing for bass you would have to say um, <laughs> just uh, a couple of days after um he brought our attention to that brilliant stat last week which said that england haven't won for two years um while when joe root hasn't scored a, a 50 in the match um, well, they've won this match um, with Joe Root not having scored a 50 piercing. Yeah, we can certainly remove the word brilliant before the word stat in your description there, I think. But no, I, I, can, I can see where he's coming from, despite it just being kind of poor statage. But who cares? He's been proved wrong now as Basball takes new leaps into random players like Ben Folks scoring the winning runs. So... Yes, I could see where he was coming from. Was he right a week ago? No. Was he right today? Even more conclusively, no. So happy days for me, less happy days for Bass Ship. <laughs> well, I would have to say he's got a, a comeback to that, that because you only played one innings, one batting innings in this match, um, so he didn't have the chance to, to bat twice. Well, then this uh, doesn't matter. This doesn't count. So he's always got to come yeah, back. No, I, I, yeah, that, that, that's that's even worse. I'm not even <laughs> going to try to counter that. That's just loopholes. <laughs> Underwhelming. Okay. One of the other big stories this week was, of course, the inaugural BBL draft. Uh, on Sunday night, um, it was a huge, big affair on Fox Sports with uh, a lot of bright lights and loud noises like they love to do with the BBL. Um, but it, it's fair to say, I think, that it probably didn't quite live up to the hype that um, the, the Cricket Australia officials were hoping for. The big story coming out of it were that um, the big names of Faf Duplessis, Andre Russell, um, Dwayne Bravo, all these types that um, for weeks leading up to the draft, there have been interviews and um, all sorts of promotional material uh, spruiking their presence in the draft. They weren't selected in the end um, for a, a 
pretty good reason for, for, by the team. So you would have to say we can discuss it in a second. But um, really, it probably wasn't what Cricket Australia were hoping for in the play. Yeah, definitely. I think those big names like Faf, Andre Russell, uh, Dwayne Brown, we, we've seen what they can do both in previous editions of, of the BBL and in IPL, CPL, all the other PLs that they have in cricket now. Um, but yeah, it's just like the big names and they just weren't picked. And there is a good reason. It's because of that South Africa T20 tournament, at least for FAF. I'm not sure about Andre Russell and uh, Dwayne Bravo, but I don't know. It's, it, was, it was quite disappointing, you know, watching it, you know, you're waiting, will they choose FAF? Will they choose Andre Russell or, or Dwayne Bravo? And, and they just didn't. So yeah, it was quite quite disappointing. I mean, there are some good names there. I'm, I'm very happy about Trent Bolt uh, at, the, at the Stars. Uh, and and my favourite player, that's not really my favourite player, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, Joe Clark for the Stars as well. So he, he's there as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, other, other than those uh, those few announcements, I think it was quite disappointing. Uh, the entire draft was a little bit, a little bit underwhelming. Yeah, yeah, probably have to say so. Um, although, you know, a few teams made some interesting calls and I think a few teams are going to be quite good because of it. In particular, the Melbourne Renegades, as expected, taking Liam Livingston. Um, that will definitely help them out um, who have struggled in recent years with their batting. Um, and then, of course, we had a retention. Well, the Stars tried to get Rashid Khan, but the strikers used their retention pick on him. Trap up three, as you said, Sam Billings, four for the Heat, Chris Jordan, uh, five for the Sixers, and David Williams, Shadab Khan, the other Platinums um, selected. Pearson, what did, what did you think on just the, the draft in general, the, the process and the, the, the drama of it, the, the thinking of the teams? I mean, when we discussed drama, it was more a lack thereof, I think. I mean, I didn't hate it. I know I'm coming across as if I hate it. But it did. It just took too long. Was my complaint is we had to wait two minutes between every single player call, which they absolutely knew in advance who they were picking every time, regardless of who got signed by other clubs. I didn't think the waits were necessary. I like Navod. Don't like Mark Howard particularly, and I think that had an impact because he, of course, ran the commentary. I thought it was okay. I thought it served its purpose. I mean. That is what a draft is. It's not as fun as auctions like those you might see in the IPL because there's never really a direct conflict between two sides. You just get the occasional retention pick and otherwise it's just, here we go, just have who you want. I think most sides picked roughly the right players. I was pleased to see the vast majority were English. That's largely the only thing that keeps me watching the BBL these days. But... I do think a few teams fared better than others. I think the Sydney Thunder had an excellent draft. For me, they're the one I would highlight as the pick of the draft. I think Hales and Riley Russo produce a great top order alongside Jason Sanger and whoever the Kawaja replacement is. I think that's a good setup. I think some teams didn't perform so well. I'm thoroughly underwhelmed by Brisbane Heat. I think Sam Billings is very hit and miss. Well, if he performs, he's right. He was good last year, but we don't see that all the time. I don't get the hype for Colin Munro. Sorry, Colin, but I just can't get on the Munro train. And Ross Whiteley, I mean, I don't mind him. I like the fact that they're going for largely unknown county players, but he's not the kind of player you're expecting when you're only signing three internationals to your so-called marquee competition. 
I mean, all you all you really have to do here is look at that third list of players. Of uh, Luke Wood, I rate him, but no one knows him. Ross Whiteley, even I barely know him. I don't think any of us have heard of Israel Hachnavid, but maybe he's good. Adam Hose, again, I like, has no profile. Tamal Mills has a profile, but is a walking injury. Riley Russo is a coup, which is why I think Thunder have pulled off something good, and Fahim Ashraf's not bad. But the point would be, in an era where we are just seeing a genuine competition of a bunch of tournaments, particularly the Big Bash, ILT20, and South Africa Super League, oh, and Bangladeshi League is on at some point in that period, with all of those competing for basically the same player pool, it does become a problem. And that that's the theme we've had here, is most of the players selected have been players selected because of availability. For the clubs, I think that's great. I think if I were running a club, that's how I would pick it. I wouldn't be picking a Russell who will disappear two weeks after starting. Same goes for someone like a Faf. This is the reason I, they didn't get picked. From the league standpoint, as they try to build their profile up, I don't think that's particularly healthy. And I don't think it puts the BBL in great stead when it has to compete with those bigger tournaments coming up. Yeah, yeah. An interesting point that I've heard made since is that actually the BBL may have shot itself in the foot in terms of getting the big players by bringing in the draft because they had these players such as um, such as Faf who were, who were willing to play this season um, but because they've um, made this structure of the, the, the teams choosing who they're going to have for, for the whole season and that, um, you know, that they're, they're not, they're not going to be here. Um, and I don't know, we may see a couple um, or at least some because the teams can pick replacement players for, um, for ones who, who aren't doing the whole season. But, yeah, definitely the, it's changed the, the story Um that's for sure. A couple of other interesting things was Colin de Gronholm being selected by the Adelaide Strikers, despite not being on any of the lists of players um, who were set to be expected, um, to who were set to be selected. Um, apparently he signed up in time, but not enough time to officially put it on the lists and stuff. So that was a bit out of left field. And then he went on to retire, much to your disappointment uh, Navod from international cricket so he'll be there for the whole season um but who did you think with it was the the best side out of the night Navod I think the best side I think has to be the Sydney Thunder I think that's they've got some really good um the the, the picks they made were just really good but I'm personally very biased towards the Melbourne Stars I think having Trent Bolt is a really good addition I think we really needed a good quick like Trent Bolt um, and, you know, Joe Clark and Luke Wood as well. So some good picks. But I think, yeah, objectively, I think the Thunder have the best picks. Yeah, it's pretty hard to go past the Thunder. I thought the Adelaide Strikers, not so much with the draft, um, but their squad in general is looking pretty good. Um, if Chris Lynn um, keeps performing as he has been over in England for a bit, and then obviously getting Rashid Khan back, Colin de Grantom and... Adam Hose as well. So that's not a not a bad team they've got going there. Um, and then the Hobart Hurricanes picking all Pakistani players um, for their three selections as well. Ponting putting all his trust in them. So a few interesting storylines um, nonetheless. We've also had the regular season of the 100 come to an end this week um, in quite dramatic fashion. 
Pearson, do you want to quickly take us through um, the final couple of days and how that's all ended up? Sure. I mean, it was it was actually it became an interesting tournament towards the end of it. I must admit, compared to last year, some of the publicity is less exciting. It's probably been a bit less well supported, I think. However, it's not been bad. I mean, the conclusion was at least good. So going into the the final game was today. Um, going into today, Trent Rockets were guaranteed to go through by virtue of just topping the league. By extension, because of the weird way the final system works, the top-ranked side immediately goes to the final, which I believe is Sunday of this week. Um, before that, I imagine on the Saturday, second place in the table plays third. Uh, London Spirit were through on net run rate already, regardless of how the other teams went. So it came down to Manchester Originals playing Oval Invincibles last night. A Originals win would send them through. An Invincibles win would send them through. And in the unlikely event of a tie, Birmingham Phoenix would have gone through. Uh, in the end, it actually became a very good quality game. It's fairly low run chase of only 140-something. And basically, the Oval Invincibles collapsed. Collapsed. An Irish international making his 100 debut took five for and was quite impressive. Josh Little, that was. Uh, in the end, it left Oval Invincibles needing 11 off, sorry, not Oval, Manchester Originals even, needing 11 off the last five, which kept going into the final over of the season, all three teams potentially with a chance of going through. In the end, um, there was a dropped catch on the boundary that went for six that took them just over the line with a ball to spare, which sent Manchester Originals through in second, um, usurping the London spirit on net run rate, which leaves the semi-final, or I don't know if it's actually called a semi-final, but the what I will call the semi-final as Manchester Originals versus London spirit, I imagine at Old Trafford, and then a final between them and Trent Rockets, which should take place at the home ground of Trent Rockets, which is, of course, Trent Bridge in Nottingham. I think the tournament all wraps up Sunday. So despite a bit of criticism, it has been a pretty quick and easy tournament. Okay. Um, and the other tournament um, that started in the last week is, of course, the Asia Cup, um, a competition which includes India, Pakistan, Hong Kong, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. Uh, I think there's been about five games so far. India unbeaten. Sri Lanka had a had a tough result. Um, Navod, maybe start us off with uh, Sri Lanka's first match. Yeah. So I mean, I was quite. I rated our side going into this into this tournament, but we just really, really performed really badly. It was just really uh, disappointing. I don't know. I'm kind of heartbroken, uh, but. Yeah, no one really scored runs. Um, bar so Bhan against Karaj, but... against Afghanistan, right? Yes, against Afghanistan. Yeah, which um, and it, yeah, we should have beat them, but you know, it is what it is. But um, yeah, Barnaka Rajapaksha, the only really um, the only real batsman that really performed. Uh, Chamak and Karanon that tried to keep the innings together uh, with a nice solid thirty-one, but ultimately it wasn't enough. We only hit one hundred and five, and Afghanistan was able to uh, to reach that in about ten overs. So. Really disappointing. I think it was just, um, yeah, it was just really bad. There was a little bit of chaos, actually, uh, in the first three overs. So Patip Nisanka's wicket was really strange. So 
the umpire thought that the batter had nicked off to the keeper and then Sri Lanka reviewed immediately. But the third umpire um, actually advised the the on-field umpire to stay with his decision, even though Ultra Edge showed no, you know, nick or no spike in the in the noise um, you know, graph that they showed. So it didn't look like there was an edge, but the third umpire said it's still out. So, I mean, would it have made a difference? Maybe not, because everyone else around was just collapsing. Um, apart from Barnak Rajpaksh, as I said, um, quite quite a good um, little innings from him. Uh, 38 off uh, 29, so strike rate of 131. So not not bad, pretty good. Um, but then, yeah, obviously a little, uh, some poor running, I think, is something that we used to struggle with and we got rid of that issue, I think, and then it's coming back. So a few... Um, you know, little issues that we've had that are now coming back to the surface, which I'm not sure why they are, uh, but they're there. So, yeah, a bit of poor running cost him his wicket, which is a bit of a shame. Um, yeah, as I said, Charming current on his little resistance, but ultimately, uh, in the end, uh, Afghanistan's bowling was just far too good. And then their batting, obviously, uh, was quite good as well. So, ultimately, a very disappointing performance from Sri Lanka. Hopefully, um, I think we've only played one game so far. So, hopefully, in our second game, we can bounce back. But yeah, not looking good so far. Yeah, I, I hope the hope the the Taliban hasn't got uh, control of the umpires there with that umpiring <laughs> decision. But uh, anyway, uh, on Afghanistan, they're they're no easy beats anymore. That's for sure. And when I saw that they had won, I was expecting to see that Rashid Khan had got a five for and scored a fifty for them to to win. But he's definitely not the only. Um, star for the team now, Ramanullah Gerbaz uh, was their star batsman with 40 of 18. Um, and then with the bowling, um, everyone except for Asma Tula Omazai, who went for 20 off and over, everyone else, very impressive figures. So, um, yeah, maybe as we come up to the T20 World Cup, we could potentially see some shock results uh, with Afghanistan. Um, the other big match, obviously, over the past week was um, the big rivalry of India against Pakistan. Um, there was a huge build-up to the match, a lot of hype going into it, um, and in, in the end, India um, got the victory piece. It actually wasn't a bad game. It was two sides with similar issues of their top order was just too slow. Rizwan hit 43 of 42 in the Pakistan innings, Kohli 35 of 34 in the India innings. So both teams were quite stunted by that. It did end up going down to the final three balls with India winning with two balls to spare. You can credit that in large part to Hardik Pandya, who managed 33 off 17. If not for him, there's a reasonable chance that they just wouldn't have won that game. He was the only player to strike at above 120 in their side. Jadeja, well, Jadeja was 120.6, but I'm, I'm not going to count that. But it was it was an interesting game. I think it showed the fallibilities that both batting lineups have. They're still arguably it could be argued they're still both slightly outdated. They're and it's a weird thing to say because I'm not used to it as a fan of Test cricket. But they're both too their averages in their top order are too high. They need to take more risks. Is how I'm viewing it. I think this goes beyond just that game. I mean, it's worth looking at the next game in which India was struggling to get to 140-150 against Hong Kong, of all teams, until Suyukumar Yadav came in. I will put it out there, because I know they're being much maligned at the minute. The Indian top three isn't doing that well. 
So in, in the Asia Cups so far, the Indian top three is at 163 runs, and it's taken them 149 balls. Um, the Everyone else in the lineup, so four down, if it 155, that's eight less runs. They've done it in 91 balls. That's 58 less balls to hit eight less runs, which shows the basic differential between them at the minute. That's not to suggest that Rahul, Rohit, and Kohli are bad players. They're not. But you can't keep picking a player who's just hit 36 off 39 against Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong hit 150, so the pitch wasn't a minefield. So I'm I'm not really sure what's happening there, but I do think they probably need changes. I think they have more avenues to make changes than a side like Pakistan do. But yeah, but I'd say honestly, the established sides or the three historically large sides in the Asia Cup being Sri Lanka, Pakistan and India haven't really impressed me that much. I know India have a 100% record, but at the same time, they just scraped past Pakistan and they beat Hong Kong. So it's, it's been an unusual tournament in which I don't think there's been any side that I'd go out and say, yeah, they're really good. Yeah, I, I guess the scary thing from teams looking in on India um, is how well Hardik Pandya is playing um, in that game where he scored the winning knock. He also took three wickets. Um, and if he performs like this in the T20 World Cup, well, you know, no matter how the rest of his team's batting, um, he could potentially uh, do the job for them. And it is worth saying that Coley did um, finally manage to uh, notch up a 50 um, in that second match against Hong Kong as well. So uh, he's back there. Um, how does how does it work, Navod, with the two groups? Does just one team, is it just like a final straight after the, the group stage? Or do you know how it works? Honestly, that's a very good question. I'm not too sure how it works. I assume the top two teams from each group, so Group A, which is India, Pakistan, Hong Kong, and Group B, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, I assume the top two go to some sort of final or something like that. But yeah. then again, I'm not really sure. It's um, yeah, it's oh, an yeah. unusual tournament. It's not one that is really covered that much either. But um, yeah, I really don't know what the, uh, yeah, what I'm, the structure of that I'm is. I'm quietly confident it's semis and a final. But yeah, I, I just checked. It, could it be is. Like it is, yeah. yeah. So Yeah, there's that's... not enough teams to have more than four in the finals. Oh, no. And I thought they're not... it would... I thought it might just be so they have to do semis by default. I think I'm not sure why that's a thing. But oh, I can't yeah. name the last time I saw a tournament where they True. just went group yeah. stage done final. But I wait, honestly, that wouldn't always be a bad thing. Yeah, that's true. So Bangladesh, they lost their first match as well to Afghanistan. So if you beat if Sri Lanka beats them, they should be able to still get through Navod. But uh, we'll see what happens there. Quite an interesting yeah. tournament, though. Um, yeah, it is definitely. Yeah. yeah. And a quite um I saw the trophy that they're playing for as well. It's a huge big trophy they've got. Don't know how they've uh where they've got that from. <laughs> but uh it's better than the better than the World Cup, I, I think. Uh, yeah, <laughs> everyone should should look that up perhaps. Anyway, um we also obviously had Australia play Zimbabwe this week, but we might wait until Ethan's back on the podcast and the final match is done to discuss that. Uh, but uh, I think it's just safe to, to quickly say Steve Smith's back to being the best batsman in the world again. Um, we've got a new superstar bowler in Cam Green, just absolutely <laughs> destroying Zimbabwe. Um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, it's probably probably about all you need to know. <laughs> I, look, I'm 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 going to make one comment. 
because if Ted can talk himself up, so can I. I did make the prediction going into this series that they'd win by 100 runs or with 15 overs to spare in every game they played. Thus far, I've got two out of two, so we need one more dominant performance and we're good to go. Uh, only other comment is Ted is wrong about most of his analysis of Australian cricket there, but that can be debated when Ethan's back <laughs> on the podcast in a week's time. Yeah, no, we, we, won't, we won't mention the name Aaron Finch <laughs> for the moment, <laughs> but... Uh, Anyway, um, that's uh, all for this podcast, I think. Um, I'll be seeing you guys in Canberra tomorrow so uh, we can meet in person for once. Sounds good. Yeah, look forward to it. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.